Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. I didn't know why I kept staying, why I hadn't been strong enough to leave him. I felt as though I was stuck in an abandoned dugout canoe in the middle of a choppy ocean, unable to paddle my way back to safety. This program features the work of 2017 writer Hera McLeod. She spoke with curator Jordan Amani Keith about her work. So the title of my book is Victim, Survivor, Warrior. This is uh, this has sort of been a work in progress for a title because, you know, I went through several different versions and then I realized, wait a second, <laughs> I'm just going to keep it simple. And my book is split up into three different parts. The first part is victim, second part is survivor, and then the third part is warrior. Mm. Your title of your book and the journey, which you refer to, I, when I was thinking of it, it was familiar to me in the heroine's journey. Mm-hmm. Um, Maureen Murdoch, she she framed that a female's journey as a hero is different. And mostly she contextualized it with loss versus a call to action. Mm-hmm. And um, the call to action coming later. And I hear, I hear your journey in there. I wonder... If you would talk a little bit about um, how you are going to take us on this journey with you into coming into being a warrior. Sure. So uh, it's interesting. Anyone who knew me just like outside of my romantic life would be like, wow, like she's always been tough because I had kind of a different persona when I would walk into the workspace. And I think a lot of women do, right? Like we go to work and we have this different personality and then we come home and it's sort of like just someone else. And so in the beginning of my story, even though I knew how to be tough and I knew how to stick up for myself in the workplace, I didn't do that in my personal life. And I start out kind of just this doormat. I mean, I really wanted a family and I had I had this idea probably because society says that you're supposed to like when you turn 30 you've got to have kids, you have to like be married and if you're not there's something wrong with you. And so I had all these like deep-seated internalized self-doubts and I carried those into my relationship and so when things started getting bad I was kind of a perfect target for somebody who is mentally ill and who wants to take advantage of that because there was all kinds of gaslighting going on where, you know, something crazy would happen or, you know, he would be abusive. And, and at the end of the argument, I'd be thinking, did I do something to make this happen? And I don't think, I mean, it really wasn't until my son was born and my maternal instinct that I even considered surviving or getting out of it. And so for me, I just sort of felt the end of the victim period, it was kind of like I was almost like thrust into survivor mode because I cared more about him than I cared about myself. And in surviving for him, he helped give me that strength to be a self-advocate because 
towards the end of the survivor period of just going and fighting for custody and fighting to protect him, I started to realize, like, I can't protect anyone if I can't stick up for myself. And that was important. I mean, I think I started the survivor period where everyone was giving me advice as to, like, what I should do to try to help myself or help my son. And I would just listen to everyone. Like, I I was like, okay, yeah, we'll try it. And I didn't really have an active—I wasn't an active participant. I was just kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever I have to do to survive. And what I realized is, like, no one's going to—no one's going to come and save you, you know? Like, you have to do something yourself. You wrote, um, in Smoggy Sunset, the sky was beautiful despite the fact that it was smog— and that really, that really jumped out at me. Yeah. <laughs> there, this beautiful orange light, and there's something wrong with it. Yeah, and that I, was kind of my relationship. It was like, you know, just going back to that scene, I lived in this, I lived in this house that I hated that was his house, and I was paying for his house, and it was in this, like, horrible suburban neighborhood that sat on top of a farm that was probably at one point beautiful. They just, like— obliterated the farm, put all these houses right next to each other, and there was, like, power lines. And I'm looking—I'm sitting on the porch, and it's, like, a a spring day, very nice outside, just, you know, weather-wise. But it's smoggy, and it was that orangey sunset that is pretty, you know, when you look at it, but you know that it's not because you know that the only reason it looks like that is because it's just smog and pollution. And so as I was sitting there— having this conversation with my son's father, I mean, our even our conversation was reminiscent of this sunset because it's like, here's this relationship that I saw it as beautiful because I wasn't really looking at it for what it really was. But, um, you know, the way that I kind of look at, you know, my writing and my journey is that when I was in grad school, someone told me, they were like, you know, life is like a pot of boiling water. And you can either choose to be the carrot, the egg, or the coffee bean. And so, like, if you're the carrot in boiling water, you just get soft, right? So that's the person who's just, like, crying, and they're just like, oh, life is terrible. And, you know, like, you're just, you become this weak person. If you're the egg, you're just that person that has this huge chip on your shoulder, and you're like, whatever, like, everyone sucks. But the coffee bean is the best because you make, you know, you get better and you also like change the water and the water becomes better. And so I try to be the coffee bean because, I, well, I like coffee. <laughs> and I also just think that, you know, a lot of people live through really bad situations. Um, I mean, I don't know that it's possible to get to the age of 36 that I am now without having some some turmoil in your life. And I know there's a lot of people out here who've lived through worse experiences than I have. And so, you know, I I think, of course, all of those choices were open to me. You know, I could have become any of those things. But to me, it's like I want, I want to change the world and I want to make it so that nobody has to live through what I had to. Or if they do, at least they know they're not, they're not alone. Hmm. I think that's what I'm most proud of, like the transition between survivor and warrior, because by the end of the story, it could have just been reaching the point of despair where, 
you know, I was like, the police aren't going to protect me. My lawyers aren't going to protect me. And I have to be mama bear and I have to be the one to protect us. And even though my son ultimately didn't survive, I just, I've always felt that we don't choose our children, they choose us, you know, like spirits come to us. And I think my son chose me for a reason. I think he knew that I wasn't going to be silent. And I think he knew that I was going to speak up and fight for children. And the way I look at it is, you know, I know that my son wasn't the first and he probably won't be the last, but I want him to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to have to live through that. And so my choice to tell my story was because I I'm, I made a promise to my son that I wasn't going to be quiet and that I was going to start fighting for him and for everyone after him. And um, so many things happen in my story. I mean, it was kind of like the perfect storm of bad. And when I look at my story, I always say, you know, people are like, oh, well, it's about Joaquin. I'm like, no, it's not. He's just a piece of it. But there were so many factors. There were so many things wrong in our society. So there's sort of this like undercurrent of like, all these things that need to be changed. And if people aren't brave enough to start the conversation by telling their stories and and just showing people that this is actually what happens, I mean, I don't think that I would have believed my story if I had heard it before it happened to me. Mm. I would have been like, there's no way that all this craziness happened to one person. But I think if people are willing to listen and really digest what I've written. I think that there are so many things that this story exposes that need to change. Now we'll hear a selection from Hera's live reading. For nearly an hour, almost every night, I watched you sleep. Often, after I put you to bed, you'd open just one eye, just to make sure that I was still there. Just as I would try to back out of the room, you'd sit up and give me a huge smile to entice me to stay. It worked every single time. You knew exactly how to melt my heart with your smile. I love you, my little prince. I worried about Prince all day and every day. The thought of him alone with his father, Joaquin, would send me into a panic attack. I became obsessed with trying to determine what Joaquin's end game was. Prince had a supervised visit with Joaquin the week before his first birthday. Trying to stay one step ahead of a crazy person will make you feel like you're going crazy. During the birthday visit, Joaquin bought Prince a -a Build-A-Bear. This was the first thing Joaquin had ever gotten him. Naturally, I was a bit skeptical of this furry creature. Part of me thought, Come on, Hera, it's just a bear. But then the crazy protective mom voice said, wait a second, he never does anything just because he's trying to be nice. My first instinct was to tear the bear apart with my teeth and throw it in the mall trash can next to where I was standing with my mom and aunts when I first saw it. But then I decided to do the saner thing and ask them. One of my aunts said, before I even told her how I was feeling, you better check that and make sure he didn't bug it. The other said, it's too risky, 
throw it out. Don't even let it in the car. Let's destroy the bear, said my mom, <laughs> furious with a strong sense of conviction. I shook my head, threw it in the back in the box, and took my son home. I thought about this stupid bear the whole ride home. I suspected it was purchased in order to make to look good in front of Diane, the retired police officer who supervised the visits. She was set to testify in court the next day. I felt guilty about the thought of destroying it because I was in near constant mourning over the reality that my son didn't have a loving father. I wished that Joaquin could have been the type of person who simply wanted to do something nice for his son, but I knew Joaquin well enough to know that this wasn't true. I didn't trust it, so that bear spent the night in the garage. The next morning, I walked downstairs after spending the entire night dreaming about this damn bear. My mom was awake when I arrived in the kitchen. So, what are you gonna do with the bear? She asked, appearing as though she had lost as much sleep as I did over this ridiculous fiasco. This is crazy. We're being paranoid. I quickly escaped the conversation, grabbed my travel mug full of coffee, and rushed out the door. On the drive to work, I couldn't stop trying to figure out if I wasn't taking this serious enough. Was my mother right to be so worried? This is the man who has been lying and terrorizing me since before he met me. A bear couldn't just be a bear. Once I got to work, I brought it up with my coworkers. Oh yeah, I bet that thing is totally bugged, one of them said, only fueling the fire to this crazy town situation. What if he turned it into one of those nanny cam type things? That would be totally creepy, said another. These people did clearly nothing to bring me back to the land of the Seine. I thought I should have known better than to ask a bunch of case officers at the CIA whether I should trust this situation. <laughs> On my drive home, my mother called to ask about the bear. Okay, mommy, if you really want to check, just do it, I said, frustrated. Still that we were obsessing over this an entire day later. Um, okay, good, I already did, she responded. <laughs> Followed by a brief silence as I waited to learn what exactly she had done to the bear. She had cut off its head and ripped out all of its stuffing. <laughs> of course, there was nothing there. It was just a bear filled with stuffing and a fake heart. I felt terrible and crazy. My mom told me I shouldn't feel bad and that the bear was a casualty of war. But it wasn't just a bear. It had become a symbol of the environment of distrust. This relationship was not sustainable. It was impossible for me to stop worrying about my son, and after Joaquin proved so many times what he was capable of, there was no way I would ever trust his intentions towards Prince. Several months after Prince's birthday, the judge lifted supervised visits. He allowed Joaquin to have Prince alone for seven hours every other week. Dropping Prince off with Joaquin always felt as though it would be the last time I would see him. I had a hard time enjoying anything because I stressed about the visit the entire week before. The night before the fourth unsupervised visit, I got home later than usual. Prince greeted me with what I like to call the mama dance. He stood at the glass door that separated the garage from the main house, waiting for me to arrive. As soon as I came in the door, his face lit up. He lifted his arms in the air and wiggled his little butt. Of course, his butt was smaller, but you know. <laughs> um, all the anger I harbored at my job for getting stuck there late melted away when I saw Prince dancing. I ran through the door, lifted him into my arms, and kissed him all over my face, all over his face. He giggled, leaned into my hug. The next morning, Prince slept in and woke up with a huge smile on his face. 
He threw blocks at the dogs, hugged me and my mother, and ate his baby yogurt. I tried to think of an excuse to keep him home that day, but I came up short. Diane had already warned me that if I canceled another visit without a doctor's note, she would give Joaquin the ammunition he needed to take me back to court for violating the order. It's going to be okay, baby. Mama loves you so much. Have a good day, and Mama will see you tonight, I whispered softly in his ear when it was time to say goodbye. I looked at Prince, lifted him out of the car, and hugged him close to me. I love you, Gigi Bean, I said to him while strapping him into the car seat. Gigi Bean was one of the many nicknames I had for him. I was nervous all day and anxiously awaited the time that I could return to pick him up. I was working during the visit, trying to make more money so I could pay my attorneys. While at my desk, my mother called. Hera, you need to leave work now. Something has happened. Prince is in the hospital, she said. Her voice sounded panicked. Before she even finished explaining, I dropped the phone and ran out of the office. I'm not a fast runner, but this is the fastest mile I have ever run. As I ran through the empty halls, my footsteps echoing as my feet stomped across the marble floors, horrible thoughts flashed through my mind. I shouldn't have sent him. I should have run. I should have kept him with me, I thought, jumping into my car and speeding out the gates of the compound. Okay, so Prince had another febrile seizure. He must have just been taken to the hospital. He's just fine, like last time. I tried to remain calm, speaking audibly to myself as I drove. Then a police officer called me. He didn't give me any medical information, other than that Prince was being flown to a different hospital. It was weird that nobody was talking to me while I was driving. Why weren't they telling me what happened? Why did a police officer call me? After three hours of waiting, pacing the pediatric ICU, just a few halls away from where I gave birth to Prince 15 months prior, I was finally led back to see him. As I looked through the glass of the room, my heart broke. I saw my baby lying in the bed, unconscious and full of tubes. I entered the room and touched his forehead. He was as cold as ice. I will never forget how cold his hair felt. Before that moment, I didn't know hair could feel cold. As soon as the doctor saw me touch Prince, she grabbed my arm, and she told me she needed to talk to me. Prince suffered cardiac arrest. We don't know at this time what happened. He's not responsive to the medication. He's on a ventilator and the prognosis is poor. He will likely die, he will likely die soon. If he doesn't die, he'll have significant neurological deficits. The doctor spoke in a deadpan voice, completely devoid of emotion. I was in shock, hoping that any moment I'd wake up from this nightmare. I walked over to Prince and held his hand. Before I knew it, the nurses were trying to shove a chair under me as I fell on the ground. My world was slipping away. Prince was gone and I was staring at his empty body. It was clear that his soul had already passed on. My heart ached worse at the knowledge that I wasn't there when this happened. I wish I could have been with him. Maybe I could have protected him. The doctors didn't know what happened, but I knew the moment I saw his lifeless body. His father killed him. Joaquin had carried out my biggest fear. The thing my own attorneys thought I was crazy for worrying about. I sung to him and cried. Please don't leave me, baby. Mama loves you so much. For some reason, I still wanted to believe that Prince would be able to find his way back to me. It took 48 hours for doctors to officially declare Prince brain dead. Since a criminal investigation surrounding his death had already begun, waiting was a central part of evidence preservation. I sat by his side the entire time his body shut down. The smell was awful, 
inescapable, and every whiff slapped me in the face with the reality of what was happening to him. Fury boiled inside me. I could feel myself transforming into someone who was merely a shell of the pushover I once was. Finally, after the 48 hours was over, Prince was pronounced dead. The nurses handed me his lifeless body, took the collar off his neck, and unplugged him from life support. Blood poured out of him and all over me. He officially died in my arms on October 21st, 2012 at 8.38 p.m. Part of me died with him that night. I knew there was no way I could unlive that moment, no matter how much I wished I could. When I arrived home later that night, I noticed the headless bear lying on the floor as I pulled into the garage. I had assumed that my mother had thrown it away after tearing off its head, but it had been lying on the floor ever since the day it was destroyed. Every time I had pulled into the garage prior to this day, I was too busy being Prince's mother to notice that it was still there. As soon as I parked the car, I jumped out, grabbed the bear, and threw it out of the house into the pouring rain. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Amani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase, and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>